I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Do me a favor. Rate, review, and subscribe to Dreams of Black Wall Street on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Not only are you doing me a solid, but you're helping to get the word out about Dreams of Black Wall Street so we can continue educating more people about the history we discuss here.
was Oh Freedom, sung by LaRonda S. Manigault Bryant, professor of Africana Studies at Williams College. She performed that song in front of colleagues, students, and friends who gathered at Williams College on September 17, 2016, to pay tribute to the late Dr. Leslie Brown, who listeners were introduced to in the last several episodes. Brown was a professor of history at Williams College at the time of her death on August 5, 2016, after a battle with cancer. In a letter to the Williams College community from President Adam Falk shortly after her untimely passing, he writes that Brown was, quote, a widely respected scholar of American history and in particular of African-American and American women's history, admired by her colleagues here and everywhere and beloved by her students as an inspirational professor who gave back to them at least as much as she demanded. She was boisterous in all the best ways, wonderfully complex, and impressively free of pretense. She was devoted to the essential work of moving forward this institution together with students, faculty, and the administration. And she led by example, showing her students the importance of history and context in advancing a cause. She also was incredibly warm and caring, mentoring junior faculty, giving valuable feedback to colleagues on their manuscripts, and supporting students through difficult times. Born in New York City and raised in Albany, New York, Leslie received her bachelor's degree in 1977 from Tufts University, majoring in English and sociology. She worked for the McDonald's Corporation and as a college administrator at Skidmore College, where she directed the Higher Education Opportunity Program before heading to Duke University for graduate school. She earned a PhD in history from Duke in 1997. From 1990 to 1995, she co-coordinated Behind the Veil, documenting African-American life in the Jim Crow South, a collaborative research and curriculum project at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. She taught at Skidmore, Duke, the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and Washington University in St. Louis before coming to Williams. End quote. During her time as an academic and a scholar, Brown taught history courses on race, gender, and documentary studies. With her partner, Annie Volk, Leslie co-coordinated Living with Jim Crow, African-American Women and Memories of the Segregated South, which won the 2011 Oral History Association Book Award. Annie is now a professor of history as well as director of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning in the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Brown's book, Upbuilding Black Durham, Gender Class and Black Community Development in the Jim Crow South, has profoundly deepened my understanding of the complicated intersection of race, class, and gender in Durham, North Carolina during the Jim Crow era. I have cited that book a number of times in this season of the podcast. Hers is an honest, thoughtful, and thorough description of the socioeconomic fabric of Black Durham during the early 20th century, the home of North Carolina's Black Wall Street, and notably the contribution of African-American women to the upbuilding of Black Durham during this time period. Black women have often been omitted or written out of history. 
we'll highlight several women that wrote them back into history, including Dr. Brown. And we'll amplify the voices of Black women who may not have received all of the recognition they deserved in life, but were absolutely instrumental and foundational to the growth of not just Black Durham, but North Carolina as a whole, during one of the darkest moments in the history of the state following the Civil War. First, I would be remiss if I did not sufficiently shine a light on the life and work of Dr. Brown. The following does not come close to depicting just how groundbreaking Dr. Brown's work was and how dynamic of a life she led. Still, I think this brief montage of certain moments from that memorial I mentioned at the beginning of this episode is a good starting point. Next, you'll hear from Alexander Byrd, Vice Provost for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, as well as Associate Professor of History at Rice University. Nancy Hewitt, Professor Emeretta of History and Women's Studies at Rutgers University. Kevin Walsh, who at the time of this recording was a senior at Williams College majoring in history. Tiana Fincher, who at the time of this recording was also a senior at Williams. And Sharai Dotton, at the time of this recording, a junior at Williams College and part of the Sankofa step team. All in that order. Nancy Hewitt from uh, Rutgers University, but I first met Leslie Brown 25 years ago while interviewing for a faculty position at Duke University. She was part of an amazingly diverse but tight-knit group of PhD students, uh, and they were part of the interview process. And truth be told, I found Leslie a bit intimidating at first. Still, when I moved to Duke in the fall of 1992, Leslie Brown and Ann Vaughn became my first two dissertation students. I had little experience mentoring PhD students, so I was fortunate to have such innovative and gifted scholars show me the way. Though the way was not always easy. Leslie was especially adamant about how she envisioned her dissertation. Now, at the time, many women's and gender historians were analyzing the mutually constitutive character of race, class, and gender. Some did so by examining a single group, like working-class black women or middle-class black masculinity, and probing the ways that race, class, and gender intersected for that particular group. Some did so by comparing groups who differed by race or class. So studying working class and middle class white women or black and white middle class reformers. But Leslie planned to analyze working class, middle class, and elite black women and men and white women and men in in the worlds in which these black women and men moved. Uh, At least she was willing to limit the study to a single community, Durham, North Carolina. To me, this seemed a time-consuming research project, and Leslie was already coordinating with Ann Valk the Behind the Veil Project, a massive oral history collaboration between Duke University 
and several historically black colleges and universities to document the Jim Crow era in 22 Southern communities. While I worried about the competing demands on her time, Leslie insisted that her dissertation and the collaborative project reinforced each other. It became clear that neither I nor Ray Gavins, her dissertation co-chair, were going to change her mind. And we were both impressed by the compelling ways that she integrated oral histories with more traditional archival sources. Ultimately, of course, Leslie wrote the dissertation that she had envisioned and in 2008 published it under the title Upholding Black Durham, Gender, Class, and Black Community Development in the Jim Crow South. Widely praised for its beautiful, beautifully rendered history of African Americans' diverse experiences across eight decades, the book won the pre prestigious Frederick Jackson Turner Prize from the Organization of American Historians. The book became a model for scholars analyzing intertwined histories of race, class, and gender. As importantly, I think, Leslie demonstrated that conflicts within Durham's black community, rather than undercutting struggles for racial justice, sparked new initi initiatives that mobilized more men and women. Finally, she gave not only voice, but the names of tobacco workers and domestic servants, as well as teachers, ministers, and business owners engaged in these pursuits. Leslie Brown continued to document the multifaceted faceted experiences of black Americans and women through her work with the Oral History Association and in a range of publications. In 2010, she edited with Ann Valk, Living with Jim Crow, African American Women and Memories of the Segregated South, which used black women's voices to explore discrimination and resistance across the female life cycle. It won the Oral History Association's Biennial Book Prize. Brown then edited African American Voices from Emancipation to the Present, a documentary collection for classroom use rooted in the courses she taught at UMSL, Washington University, and here at Williams. Her last book, co-edited with Ann Valk and Jacqueline Castledine, entitled U.S. Women's History, Untangling the Threads of Sisterhood, will appear late this year. A young scholar whose article appears in that collection emailed me recently, grateful for the close reading Leslie gave each of her drafts. She wrote, quote, her critiques were tough but thoughtful, transforming not only this article, but the entire book manuscript from which it came. In this scholar's work, in my own work, and in that of so many other, Leslie Brown's intellectual insights and imagination, along with her collaborative spirit, live on. And I want to turn the podium over now to one of Leslie's dearest friends from Duke and a wonderful scholar in his own right, Dr. Alex Bird. What a phenomenal woman, Leslie Brown. A lot of us met her through her work, the work of recovering and preserving African-American history, the work of learning that a great deal of that work could be lonely and solitary, 
the work of learning that some very important parts of it were collective. The work of learning how to be mentored in African-American history, but also the work of learning that we had a lot to teach each other. Out of the group of would-be professors who landed at Duke University in the early 1990s, Leslie did more than her share of the work that scholars in training have to do for each other. In one sense, this makes perfect sense because Leslie simply knew more than we did. But she did not also have to be generous and patient and caring, and this is important, demanding and expectant in the work that we did together. She did not have to do those things. Those things were gifts, the gifts of knowing Leslie. One student from our cadre remembered having trouble during the first semester of graduate school creating a cohesive essay. Leslie overheard his complaint and volunteered to meet him in the library. That, that's the important part. Like, that's, that's Leslie, right? She overheard his complaint and volunteered to meet him in the library. May have also volunteered him to meet her in the library. Leslie and her new colleague line edited the document, corrected mistakes, and she also made a number of, and this is Leslie, made a number of tough love suggestions concerning some of the thematic choices that the author had made. They hardly knew each other. Leslie certainly had plenty of work to do herself, but this was the essence of her collegiality. Hi, my name is Kevin Walsh, and I am currently a senior history major here at Williams. I had the absolute pleasure of taking a class with Professor Brown this past semester called History Beyond the Headlines. The goal of this class was to take the most relevant current events and to dive into each one of them to explore how the past influences each of us in the modern day. There was one specific seminar that I will never forget, and it was one in which we studied Guantanamo Bay. We looked at the reasons it was founded, its role after the infamous attack of 9-11, and the reasons that President Obama was going through steps to close the institution. Afterwards, we had one of the most thought-provoking discussions I have had at Williams as we debated the ethics of torture and whether it had actually improved natu uh, national security. As we left the class, I don't think a single person felt as if we had reached a conclusion, or to be honest, even, be even came close to reaching a consensus. Upon reflecting on that class now, I think that is exactly how Professor Brown would have wanted it. Through taking classes with her, and spending hours in her office debating these same topics, I came to the conclusion that she thought the best way for students to learn 
was to put them in uncomfortable situations where they were forced to reflect upon their own beliefs to truly understand what they believed in and even more importantly to consider and discuss others' objections and challenges to these beliefs. and I'm a senior here who had the pleasure of taking one of Professor Brown's class, classes last semester called Politics and Prose, The Invisible Man in Historical Context. Prior to this class, though, throughout my three years here, I had had many passing encounters with her on the sidewalk around campus. I hadn't known her then, but she would nod at me every time, and I loved it because she was the first African-American professor that I had officially interacted with here at Williams. I understood her small and insignificant nods as acts of inclusion, uh, especially in this school that is so seemingly isolated from the world. It was her way of saying, I see you, and I recognize your presence. This was one of the, ma the major reasons why I decided to take a class with her. Now, before coming to Williams, I vowed never to take an English course, uh, but this was a particular course with Leslie Brown that uh, did a wonderful job of allowing students to tackle the literature while keeping its history in mind, uh, which proved to be still relevant today. She urged us to view how some things have changed or stayed the same, always finding connections in modern politics and society as evidence for progress or the lack thereof. She factored in anthropology, law, music, science, and a variety of other subjects, all to explore the identity of the narrator in The Invisible Man. And it allowed us to understand the great complexity of the book and the time period. The class consisted of many outspoken and intelligent underclassmen, and coupled with us older kids, there was never really any silence in the discussions. I believe the ease with which everyone spoke can be attributed to Professor Brown's laid-back personality. She laughed at least once in every class period, and that is something our class will never forget. And though she did come to class late a few times, uh, <laughs> she would always begin the discussions with a sense of liveliness. Once or twice she missed class completely for important medical appointments in Boston, but during the next classes she would go on as if she were perfectly fine with the same aura of liveliness as any other day. I'm Shirai Dunn. I'm a junior here at Williams, and we are a Sankofa step team, and we'll be performing a mixture of a few of our traditional pieces, um, not to mourn, but to celebrate the amazing life and legacy of Leslie Brown. And I'm probably going to get emotional, but I loved Leslie Brown. I had her as a professor and a mentor, and she was just awesome. And <laughs> she just helped me be so much more confident in who I was, who I am as a black woman on this campus and as a student, as a scholar, as everything. And I'm going to miss her, but I know she's probably like laughing at me right now, like, why are you crying? <laughs> I know she's just like turning up in heaven right now and having a great time. So <laughs> we are here to celebrate her life and her memory. And so we're going to perform a short piece for you guys.
episodes ago, you heard part of a lecture Brown gave on civil rights movements, chronologies, contexts, and the classroom at Duke University in September of 2013. During this lecture, she spoke about the importance of teaching about civil and human rights, particularly in the context of the privileges and freedoms we have in the present day. The event was sponsored by the Duke Human Rights Center at the Franklin Humanities Institute, which is also credited for this recording. You're going to hear another part of the lecture, the end of the lecture, actually. The audio can be a bit jarring, so I want to bring your attention to several points Brown will make. Pay attention to her reference of historian Herbert Apthicker's 1945 analysis of the effects of Jim Crow and its impact on various socioeconomic indicators, particularly Black health rates and mortality, which he said, quote, cripples and kills, end quote. Pay attention to Brown's reference to the National Negro Congress and the 1946 founding of the United Nations, as well as its discussion of creating a Declaration of Human Rights. Listen for Brown's reference to the intersection of the American human rights struggles of the mid-20th century and the international human rights movement of the era, and how understanding the two in relation to one another helps us expand our concept of civil rights in the context of a global movement of human and civil rights. Keep an ear out for Brown's description of the Civil Rights Congress, which included W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson, as well as their document entitled, We Charge Genocide. Pay attention to Dr. Brown's reference of Carol Anderson's analysis of the post-World War II Cold War movement for human rights and how Black demands for human rights were narrowed amid accusations that Black activists were affiliated with communism. Finally, make sure to make a mental note of Brown's emphasis on the value of civil rights for Black Americans by helping African Americans, quote, connect to the body politic, end quote, and, quote, the Constitution for its privileges and protections, end quote. But right after that, make sure you bookmark Brown's suggestion that freedom for Black Americans cannot be achieved through civil rights alone, and that true freedom will require a, quote, refreshing a language of struggle and removal, end quote, and a new focus on, quote, the basics of human dignity, end quote. citizens 
of the United States of America. Uh, and so here now I can turn to context uh, with the 1946 founding of the United Nations and its initial discussion of creating a declaration of human rights uh, in light of the war's atrocities in Europe and Asia. The UN was an international organization committed to maintaining international peace and security, to develop friendly relations, but also to promote social progress, uh, better living standards, uh, and human rights. And that's directly from the, and from the UN's own website. Uh, and so here we can connect American human rights struggles at the mid-20th century to the international human rights movement of the era, the strengthening of apartheid and the black freedom movement unfolding in South Africa, the freedom struggles of the Middle East, uh, of Western and Central Africa, uh, and the comparison that the world was making to uh, the situation of oppressed and colonized people to the situation of African Americans in the United States. States 
segregated, discriminated against, and long the target of violence, suffer from genocide as a result of consistent, conscious, unified policies in every branch of government. Ossie Davis wrote the preface. We will submit no longer to the brutal indignities being practiced against us. We will not be intimidated and most certainly not eliminated. We claim the ancient rights of all people not only to survive unhindered, but to participate as equals in man's inheritance here on earth. We fight to preserve ourselves, to see the treasured ways of our life in common, not to destroy or not to be destroyed by brutal men or heedless institutions. We, we charge genocide. Indeed, we do. So if I might return now for my final comments to the work of Carol Anderson in the post-World War II context of the Cold War, human rights as a global ideology was uh, shifted the whole conversation about rights in the 1940s and into the 1950s, it was one of entire categories of rights uh, that pointed to aspirations for human freedom. Uh, but it, came, it became an ideological battlefield, not surprisingly, between the United States and the USSR, that in the end silenced black demands for human rights by accusing black activists of affiliations with communism. To the rest of the world, it looked like American hypocrisy, the tendency to preach one ideology and practice another. Anderson goes a step further, and I just want to introduce this and maybe we can talk about it a bit more, that black leaders, um, under this kind of scrutiny, that they narrowed their own discussion of human rights, which included civil rights, to simply civil rights, because that's what they thought they could achieve, and not the others. And perhaps by achieving civil rights, they might be able to address their human rights issues. So one of the most important outcomes for me of teaching this link between human rights and civil rights side of the black freedom struggle is that students come to understand the limitations of civil rights language and the concept of civil rights itself. And this doesn't mean that civil rights is not important uh, because it's through these rights that African Americans connect to the body politic uh, and they call on the Constitution for its privileges and protections. But black people could not, cannot be free, could not be free by hymns or by freedom songs, by marches, boycotts, of sit-ins, or even by voting rights drives, or demonstrations, or by school desegregation. Simply not enough. So returning finally to the human rights aspect um, for the Americas and for the international community, this provides vast sources of information for study and new perspectives on the American past and the black past. Uh, but it also lets us turn to a new direction, if we were to pick up that theme, to turn in a new direction, to refreshing a language of struggle and renewal. Um, 
and to focus now on the basics of human dignity. And so, may Duke embrace just such an initiative. Thank you. As I mentioned previously, in her book, Upbuilding Black Durham, Gender, Class, and Black Community Development in the Jim Crow South, the late Dr. Leslie Brown amplified the voices of Black women who were integral to the continued growth of Black Durham, though for decades, they rarely received the credit they deserved. During this season of the podcast, I've leaned on the work of another expert who has done the same. Yale University, Peter VNC Van Woodward, Professor Emerita of History, Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore. She's the author of a number of books, including Gender and Jim Crow, Women and the Politics of White Supremacy in North Carolina, 1896 to 1920. This book refocuses attention to the central role of Black women as political figures in the Jim Crow era by exploring the instrumental and interconnected relationship of gender, class, and race in North Carolina politics from the period immediately prior to the disenfranchisement of Black men in 1900 to the period when Black and white women gained the vote in 1920. Gilmore's book suggests that while white supremacy tightened its grip on Blacks in North Carolina during this period, a generation of educated and upwardly mobile Black women created a strategy of political activism, a legacy that endures to the present day. These women were de facto diplomats to the white community on behalf of their husbands, brothers, and fathers who had been shut out of the political process due to disenfranchisement. Through her research, Gilmore also discovers how Black feminism helped craft stronger political ties with white women for mutual benefit, which in turn helped create a foundation for Southern progressivism. Simultaneously, as Gilmore writes, White supremacists manipulated concepts of gender, which shifted once black and white women gained the vote. I talked to Gilmore about all of this. Peter VNC Van Woodward, Professor of History Emerita at Yale University, was also in the African American Studies and American Studies departments, along with history. You asked how I found you. Well, I read your book, Gender and Jim Crow, and you did an extensive sort of analysis. And it seems like not very many people had looked at Jim Crow from the perspective of Black women, particularly in North Carolina, before you wrote your book. So just tell me really quickly how you even came to write a book like that. I uh, had written a master's thesis on the white perpetrators of the disenfranchisement campaign and the white supremacy campaign, and I just stayed with the white people. And then I started on my PhD and began to realize that everything I had written in my MA thesis that the white people were saying and doing was a response to the state's African-Americans and that the white archives had an enormous bunch of lies in them and didn't have African-American sources were rare. They were hard to get. And 
I felt it could be done. No one had done that except for a couple of early Charles Chestnut wrote a novel about the Wilmington Racial Massacre, thinly veiled fiction. There'd been two books on the Wilmington Racial Massacre, but nothing really on African-American North Carolinians and their response to what is about a three-year-long white supremacy campaign from 1897 till about 1901 that succeeds through violence and through politics. So few people had looked at African-Americans' role in the disenfranchisement campaign, and no one had really looked at women. There were mentions of Black women trying to vote in 1920 when women's suffrage became law, but no one followed up. And I thought I could follow up, particularly because I was kind of mad at being fed only one side of the story and knew there had to be another story there. But mostly Nell Painter, my dissertation advisor, who's a historian at UNC at the time and then at Princeton, told me that she thought I could find it and that I had to do it. And it was all there, actually, just overlooked. Yeah, your book, I think, kind of paved the way for some other works that came after it that, you know, delve into that subject more. One of the things I found interesting that I didn't know when I initially started reading your book was this idea of the best man and the best woman. And it seems as though, in addition to really adopting a lot of the colonial customs that white communities had been accustomed to after the Civil War as a way to assimilate into American society, a lot of formerly enslaved folks and I guess descendants of them as well seem to also try to adopt the class structure in those communities. And so kind of just bring us through really quickly, what is the idea of the best man and the best woman? And sort of how did initially whites manipulate that idea to limit Black advancement? And then how did African-Americans then assimilate and appropriate the idea of best man and best woman to use it to their advantage and own personal gain? Okay, this is a really complicated concept because we tend to think of class formation in white terms working class, middle class, upper class, industrial revolution, people rising to the top through the professions. All of these things were foreclosed to Southern African-Americans. The promise of reconstruction was there. It was brief. Formerly enslaved people were mostly not literate. So there was a huge literacy problem. But they knew that they needed to protect themselves to access full citizenship in the polity. They knew that they must be literate. They must be able to be seen as leaders, exercise responsibility, particularly after the myths of the tragedy of Reconstruction started. Oh, it was, quote, Negro rule, Thomas Dixon, birth of a nation. What whites began to do is to portray African-Americans as not ready or fatally unsuited for self-government. So Black people in the South, some of them lived lives that would be their testimony to capability 
And they would say, well, he's among the best men or she's among the best women. And I once was talking to the daughter, the very elderly daughter of Rose Agri, who said, now I want you to understand, it was not about social class. We had domestic workers. We had all sorts of people working with us in the Salisbury Southern Women's Club, which was a civic organization. She said the difference was whether people were trained and wanted to do better. So it's a kind of African-American version that I think is pretty stealthy and takes the terms of Victorian propriety, yet turns them in a way that it's proof of capability and the people who strove to be best men and women did not want to leave anyone behind. That's the sort of black colored women's clubs motto lifting as we climb, but they actually meant it not in an altruistic way necessarily or only but that they had to prove the capability of the whole race and they would go first. I would say this is pretty different than Du Bois's, W.B. Du Bois's talented 10th. He's operating on a national scale. He would have seen the talented 10th as people who were extremely well-educated, who were capable and in jobs that proved them to be capable. But for Black women, it was women who were living pious lives, very religious women who were contributing to their communities and basically were following Christian moral values. So the church is a huge part of making class in the African-American community. If you're active in your church, then that is what would be considered a leadership role across the board, no matter what your job is. So these people were to prove capability of African-Americans. White people turned it around and said they've gotten out of their place. They laughed at Black people wearing glasses, scoffed at them on the streets. They're putting on airs. They're trying to pretend they're something they're not. You cannot overestimate how hard white people in the South worked to keep alive the myth that Black people were primitive and had to be under the control of white people, familial and public sphere and politics. The white politicians are going to turn this on its head in the voting when it it comes to voting rights because they're going to say that the few Black people who are capable of voting make the rest of the Black masses think they're better than they are gives them aspirations that we can't fulfill, then they would say they're criminal and linked to depraved behavior because their office holders have agitated for them. There's definitely a gender divide. Best women have a role, best men have a role. But many of the women I looked at and found absolutely believed in women's suffrage for Black women, for all women. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember listening to a program recently and they would talk about how you know in these certain black communities 
you would wear your Sunday best to church. And so it didn't matter if you were considered lower class socioeconomically or higher class or middle class or whatever, everybody was dressed, you know, <laughs> to, right. to the nines on Sunday. And you almost could not make a distinction between class in church. <laughs> and that is a strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not an accident. That continued up to almost the present. It's a kind of weapon of respectability that you can brandish and say, I know I'm capable, I can do these things. So I've introduced listeners to the couple Charles Petty as well as Sarah Dudley Petty. You feature them sort of centrally in your book and use them as an example of aspirations a lot of African-Americans had and also their potential to achieve those aspirations. Can you just kind of give us some background and, you know, what fascinated you about the Petties and also why you decided to feature them so prominently in your book? Yes, I would love to. But first, I have to tell you that my graduate student friends staged an intervention after I'd been working for two years on the dissertation and said, you can't just write about the petties. (laughs) They do figure prominently. Um, It's that in the book, there's this incredibly hopeful period before 1900, 1901, when African-Americans are still voting and are taking their place in the public sphere. Then after that, politics and the meaning of gendered politics changes. Charles and Sarah Dudley Petty are in the first group. He is a bishop in the AME Zion Church. She's written poetry. She has a weekly column in the national newspaper of the AME Zion Church called the Star of Zion. She's fearless. She's absolutely fearless. She'll say anything. She doesn't stick to church matters in her columns. The first one I opened, I despaired of finding people who weren't among a handful of well-known people who I could bring out to do this work. People know about Anna Julia Cooper, but I could figure that Anna Julia Cooper didn't come out of nowhere. You know, she wasn't the only person would have been like that. So I decided to go back two years before the disenfranchisement campaign. I put up the Star Zion, shut my eyes, 1896, pushed the button. And when I opened my eyes and stopped pushing, there was Sarah Dudley Petty's first ever woman's column in the Star Zion. And it was for women's suffrage. So how could I not? They were exceptional because they were prominent in their church and in their communities, but they were also absolutely what people called then race people. They're in the independent black domination of the AME Zion church. This is not dominated by whites. There are no whites in this structure. They're both outspoken and they're both really smart and really good writers. And when I found their granddaughter, a very successful educator in New York. She said, when I was a child, they would tell me stories of my grandparents riding around in carriages in North Carolina in the 1890s. And 
we kids would sneak off and just laugh and laugh because we didn't believe it. Well, I think there was an element of that. The Petties introduced me to a world that's unseen, mostly unseen, particularly by white people in the South, and pretty much unseen by historians, except for a few prominent people. So they did a lot of work for me. I didn't know that he would die and she would die very early. So that was something that changed the course of the book and I think opened my eyes to see other women doing other kinds of things that were important. And probably, you know, was really enlightening regarding how devastating that white supremacy campaign was to African-Americans in North Carolina, those white supremacy campaigns, rather. You mentioned Sarah Dudley Petty's first column in the Star of Zion was about women's suffrage. So how common or uncommon was it during this period for people to be publicly speaking of and addressing the idea of the franchise for women at this time? I think that it was moderately common. It's not to say that all Black women or all Black women leaders in their churches or civic clubs supported women's suffrage, nor did all white women, particularly in the South. So the way that I could track it was in every religious denomination, there was a big debate going on about whether women should hold offices in the church, whether they should be ordained in that particular denomination. And so women are often expounding upon their ideas of women's equality by doing it through, they should be a deacon, they should be able to preach, etc. And they'll often mention women's suffrage. The point was it was politically smart because if they got the right to vote, they could represent their fathers, husbands, and sons. And it's not going to be taking away anything. The problem is disenfranchisement was so effective because it was accompanied by violence, violence at the polls. A couple of people were murdered trying to go and vote in the first election after the disfranchising amendment. A literacy test, even though African-Americans were literate, they failed them. They just flat out failed them. Even when they had passed, asked them to recite the state constitution from memory. So as African-American men lost their right to vote, African-American women's position in the political sphere completely changed because they could no longer advocate for women's suffrage in an open way because that would endanger black men, their fathers, sons, and brothers. So there's a big divide in the book around 1902 when black women turn to thinking about what work they can do without the vote and how they can try to prepare people for the future when they will be able to vote again. In 
the next episode, we'll continue our exploration of the role gender played in the social dynamics of both Durham and North Carolina in general during this time period and how it interacted with race and class, as well as the important role African-American women played in the upbuilding of their communities. We'll also explore the life of another important Black woman and legend produced in Black Durham. And if you've got some time, check out the Why Though podcast. Host Benjamin Jacobs takes listeners on a personal journey through his record collection, begging the question, is there anything more terrifying than Ben's taste in music? Ben is also the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, which focuses on the history of the Thirty Years' War, a 17th century religious conflict fought primarily in Central Europe. No. Mm-hmm.